Welcome to the podcast. It's dedicated to making you a faster cyclist. The Ask a Cycling Coach podcast presented by Trainer Road. I'm Coach Jonathan Lee with our head coach, Chad Timmerman. Hey, buddy. And we have Santa Cruz and Monster Energy's Keegan Swenson. Hey, guys. And we also have a new guest with us today, uh, Team Movie Stars, Mateo Jorgensen. Good to have you, Mateo. Hey, pleasure to be here. Uh, do I have this right? You, you are like an occasional podcast listener or you've listened to the podcast before. So I, I remember hearing that you like reached out and, uh, yep. about something like that before. Yeah, I do. I do. I always like listening to people's viewpoints on science and stuff. And yeah, I've listened to many, uh, trainer road podcasts in my rides. That's right. Heck yeah. That's awesome. You have a lot of time to do it. You do a little bit of bike riding. I'm going to run through and introduce you for the people that don't know, although chances are anybody that follows pro racing knows who you are, especially after watching the tour this year. Uh, you absolutely, you had some awesome racing, uh, to watch super fun, but anyways, professional American cyclist for the movie star team from Boise, Idaho, which is pretty sweet. Uh, do you call Boise home still or uh, do you a different area? Yeah. Boise. Yeah. yeah. That's where I'm from. Sweet. Yeah. Awesome. Killer. So, uh, Palmares in 2019, first in the points classification of tour de l'avenir, which is like the junior tour, uh, if you will, uh, it's known as like where a lot of teams look to find the best next thing, which is pretty exciting. 2021 eighth overall at Paris Nice, 2022 fourth overall at tour de la Provence. You got two fourth place, uh, stage finishes at the tour this year and one fifth place stage finish at the tour from super impressive breakaways, if I may add. Uh, Chad and I are like the ones that, I'd say in terms of all the podcast hosts, you and I follow pro racing the most and uh, chat. Amongst the, the hosts, yeah. Yeah, there's a number yep. of people at the company who are really well-versed well on the world tour and uh -huh. pro tour. Yeah. yeah, for sure. But uh, amongst the podcasts, we're definitely the most knowledgeable. Yeah, and Chad and I were very excited watching those breakaways, Mateo. Uh, you Extremely. were driving it and just... Racing is so, so awesome. Yeah. So, we had such a good American showing all around. I mean, we had like four or five hitters, American hitters in so much of the action that went on. It was just, a, it did a, did a fellow proud. Absolutely. Thank yep. you guys. Yeah, of course, man. Uh, thanks for doing it for us. I mean, you didn't really do it for us. Do it for yourself, but still. <laughs> <laughs> so we tell ourselves fourth in the white Jersey classification at the t tour de France and 21st overall, I believe 21st. I saw another thing that said 20th. I, I don't know uh, if you have that straight. <clears throat> Uh, I don't even know. Quintana just got disqualified, so could be twentieth. Twentieth, first. Top twenty instead they of top twenty-one. <laughs> yeah, who, who knows? Doesn't really matter. <laughs> uh, anyways, uh, suffice to say, you have uh, you're a rising star uh, for our country here in American cycling, but doing it at the biggest stage in the world, uh, which is the World Tour, and it's just amazing to watch. And it's a genuine pleasure to have you on here. Um, I can ask first though, did you get your start in mountain biking or road riding? Cause we have Keegan on here who has done some road racing, but really mountain biking and gravel is his main thing. Yeah, that's a good question. I think I probably started both at the same time. Uh, I probably started more on the mountain bike actually. Um, I started with the birds, a, a little club in Boise and yeah, they, they start with the young kids on the mountain bike. So I, I probably started on the mountain bike. Yeah. Uh, and how far did you go with mountain bike racing? Did you ever go to like national championships or anything for mountain biking? Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. I went, I kept mountain bike racing until I was 17 or, or 16 or 17. Um, yeah, no, I went to nationals like every year until I was probably 16 years old. Wow. And then killer. Mateo, what was the talent recognition pipeline for you? You said you started with the birds. Yeah. Yeah. I started with the birds and yeah, a few Which is like, Boise Young Rider Development uh, System, right? 
Squad. Yeah. Yeah. Squad. Yeah. Um, awesome. Squad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Great program. Great program in Boise to get kids uh, started in riding. And yeah, I started there. And then a few guys basically ahead of me in the birds, like even my brother and some of the guys older than me, they were getting into the USC cycling development program, which at the time was better funded than it is now. Um, and they were going over to Europe like that 15, 16 years old. So yeah, I was seeing that when I was young and I kind of made that my goal to try to get over to Europe with them. And, um, to do that, I just had to like, it's, yeah, I was convoluted how to, how to actually get there, but I, I, yeah, I just try to get results in, in road races and in the U S and, um, yeah, eventually I made it over when I was 15, um, <laughs> with the national team to do some kermesses. And then I went to hot tubes and, um, when I was 16, I was on hot tubes and from hot tubes, we got to go to bigger races, some races in Europe, even like Ireland and, um, that in combination with the national team basically was all just to get me to Europe. Um, that was like the biggest, um, yeah, the biggest goal and, and the way to actually go professional was to get over to Europe. So, uh, that's, that's what we did. Uh, Keegan, do you ever remember racing Mateo when you were younger? No, I think our age difference is too much. I think I have actually raced. Yeah. We were talking about this the other day that I might've raced with his brother a little bit. Um, yeah, I think so. We're closer in age. He's still, I think he's a year or two older than me. Uh, but I, I knew Mateo cause his, I mean, you, you were like friends with the putts and I kind of like, and Idaho, Utah, we're all kind of doing the same, same yeah, kind of exactly. thing. So like, I don't think we'd ever really met or exchanged much more than like a, Hey, but, uh, yeah. Yeah. And you guys have linked up on some training rides recently. Hence why we have both of you here, um, on the podcast <laughs> together. Yeah. So what do you think of, what do you think of Keegan's training grounds, Mateo? Oh, it's great. It's good. Better than, better than I expected. Uh, it's super nice, especially on the mountain bike. I went mountain biking yesterday and I was, yeah, pretty impressed. It was sweet. Yeah. Yeah. Dream territory for it. Um, so I want to get, are you interested in doing gravel racing at all? Or like, actually, before we step into that, before your personal opinion, <laughs> what does the pro Peloton think of gravel? Like, because, and, and I'm going to draw a parallel to soccer strangely here, but if you're a really good uh, soccer player and you're in the champions league or you're in any, a number of the different leagues, uh, over in Europe, the UK, uh, MLS, like American soccer has become like the retirement plan. So what you do is after a really good career over in a larger league, what you do is you, you go to MLS and you are a huge signing for a team. You get a huge amount of money and it's for like two years or so. And you really don't even have to play that well. You just like you show up and you're the name. So it ends up raising the profile of the club. And that's kind of how it happens. And they view like MLS is like this. Eh, maybe when I'm retired, you know, or maybe when I'm less competitive, that's what I would go and do. Is that how the world tour views gravel is like, eh, maybe when I'm retired sort of a thing, because we haven't seen as many top riders come over to it as I kind of anticipated would. Uh, yeah, that's a good question. I think a lot of it depends on who you ask. Uh, but yeah, I would say the Euro guys for sure. Like if we take Americans out of it, the Euro guys definitely consider it that way. Or, or I don't even think they consider a retirement plan. It's mostly the American guys that do. Um, the Euro guys, I guess, kind of think of it as, yeah, just a way to just a different, different part of cycling. I, I don't know. I haven't spoken with many of them about it, but I guess I know their attitude towards putting, putting like gravel sectors or whatever into road races and they're very against it. And it's like, 
I get why it's like you're you're basically adding in a bunch of um, a bunch of factors that outside of road racing that aren't usually there, and you're basically just adding in a lot of luck um, into road racing and especially stage racing where it doesn't a lot of times need to be. Um, but it's it's all for entertainment. I mean, that's what this whole sport is about. So I, I kind of see it as more positive than they do, but a lot of them are quite negative uh, on that sort of stuff. But Honestly, I think a lot of the Euro guys are probably mostly just unaware that gravel, like how big the U.S. gravel scene is getting, and and how, yeah, how 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 much it's growing uh, over here. And in Europe, it's mostly like they do have, I think, a UCI gravel something World Series or something, and and yeah, they mostly look at it as a joke or as a grand fondo. Sure. I think, yeah, yeah. Now, Keegan, um, like you come from the U.S gravel or mountain bike scene now gravel scene as well how do you view world tour racing i'm curious about your perspective on that yeah i mean it's always been like in my mind world tour racing is like the top level of the sport i mean it has the most eyes i mean world cup mountain bike racing is obviously quite big as well but it definitely doesn't have doesn't have the attention that world tour does you know like the tour de france is like a household name over here whereas you go to some random and likely that's all because of lance but you go to some random person and they're not even going to know what cross country mountain biking is. So I think, I mean, whether mountain bikers want to admit it or not, I think it is the top of the sport. Um, so yeah, I mean, I've always been curious about it. It's like, looks like it's a whole different, it's like kind of a different world, you know, like Mateo said, like the euros don't really even know what's, I mean, aside from a few, they don't really know what's going on over here. And it's fine. We kind of see the same thing with the UCI world gravel series. It's like, that like unbound is like gravel world championships. Like it's the biggest gravel race in the world, you know? So it's, I don't know. It's funny to hear it's got kind of the same opinions, like racing gravel in Europe just seemed it is, I think it's more treated like a Fondo. Maybe it's going to become racing. I, I don't know. But. Yeah. It's interesting how that differs from the fans. The fans view like world tour racing is like traditional kind of like a, like stuffy and like, not cool. And this counterculture movement is gravel. But when you talk to the athletes that are doing it at the high level, it's very different. <laughs> the perspective yeah. that they have on it, you know? Yeah. Changes. Um, okay. Totally. So I want to talk about a couple of different things. Uh, first Mateo, uh, I want to cover the rider type question. Cause you have a lot of athletes that always ask like, how do I find my rider type that, you know, or, or this is who I am thusly, which rider type am I? And for you, watching you get into breakaways in big mountain stages, but also do well in days when you're, you guys are just rolling the flats really hard. Did you, do you have a rider type that you identify with? Did you have one growing up? Did you develop into one as a professional athlete? Uh, yeah, that's, uh, no. Well, to answer your first question, no, I don't think I have a specific rider type right now. Uh, which is actually pretty rare in the world tour. I think there's most guys fit well into one category and they'll, yeah, they'll, they'll tailor everything towards that. Um, at least in the world tour and no, I haven't figured it out. Uh, I, 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 I guess the first two years when I turned professional with the team, they didn't know either. And they, we kind of approached it with the strategy of like, okay, we'll just start you in every type of race we can. So we'll try to do spring classics and then, try to do some stage racing and, and get you into grand tour as soon as we can. And then we'll see kind of where you, uh, do well. And from there we can, we can hone it down, but, uh, it hasn't really worked. I guess that strategy is, it's just kind of made me curious about all racing. Uh, I think 
I've performed pretty well in, in almost every type of racing. I definitely don't have a sprint, so we can, we can uh, take that out of the question. Um, but yeah, I, I've struggled. That, that's a question a lot of people ask me very often is what, what my rider type is. And, and um, I don't even really know. I think the only way, the only thing I can tell people is that I really enjoy training in the mountains and I enjoy climbing a lot uh, for training and, and racing as well. But nowadays to be a climber in the world tour from a numbers perspective is, is almost out of the question for me. It's just, I'm a little bit too big and tall. And um, yeah, when you talk to people, it's like, yeah, I'd have to lose, you know, like five kilos to get there. So it, it, it's just kind of a, a pipe dream. But I think when you have a strong, like when you're, when you have a strong ability in the climbs, you can do a lot in world tour racing and, and you don't have to be a pure climber to excel there and, and make the best of it. And like, like from the tour, get into breakaways on those medium mountain or, or mountain stages and, and yeah, try to do well. Right, Mateo, yeah. you strike me f- from having watched you for some time now as, as an all rounder, you say you can't sprint, but I'd be willing to bet you can sprint quite well from a small group. Still no. <laughs> okay. So, so maybe a slightly lopsided all rounder, but it kind of seems that the course that good all rounders go, if they're not GC all rounders, if they're not at the high, you know, the pointy end of things is to be a, a barador to, to be the guys who do exactly what you do to seize yeah. a stage from its inception, knowing that there's going to be a bit of climbing, a lot of rolling, going to have to be able to lay long, steady power down, sprint a bit if, you know, it comes down to it. And that's yeah. to me who you seem to be the type of rider. You Definitely. Seem to be. Definitely. This year's made it a bit clear. Uh, I've, I just watched, I guess I've been close enough to the GC riders to see kind of what it takes to, to do, mm. to do GC at a grand tour or even a one week stage race. I've, I've tried myself in a few one week stage races and it's just a really brutal place to be in my opinion. Like, uh, you just have to sacrifice so much of every other aspect of the sport. And I just see a lot of those guys, it doesn't, it's, it, it's a very specific thing. And there's so many guys trying to do it that it's, um, yeah, it, it's a really tough challenge. So I think for me personally, I'm way more inspired to, to go and chase stages at grand tours and, and stages at one week stage races and even one day races. It just seems like mm-hmm. something that is just a bit more exciting to me and, and racing GC where you're just every day going to the well to not lose time. And, um, and yeah, just try to like hold the wheel of those in front of you just sounds yeah brutal mentally and something that i don't really ever want to do especially for three weeks yeah no doubt uh when do you mind if i ask some numbers on like the sprinting side of things to give people some context like when you say you can't sprint what's your max power whether it's you know one second ten second uh it's like 1100 so less than i I would say it's like 1100 for five seconds and it's like 1100 for 30 seconds it doesn't i don't even Mm. have a peak really I can do that power for a really long time, but it's like in a sprint scenario that doesn't, at least in road racing, that doesn't really even matter. Like a really long sprint, maybe if you have the perfect scenario where it's like a slight uphill drag and it's after whatever you're going, it's after five minutes really hard or something, I might be able to do it. But 1100 in the world tour is, is basically the lowest you can get. I mean, guys like bar day that you see that you'd expect would have no no punch or anything would outspurt me easily <laughs> they probably have a 1400 1300 1400 watt sprint and they weigh a lot less so yeah it, it's a it's a tough ask um at 1100 to try to win any sprint but 
it's something that I've tried to, I guess, consider and try to try to, I haven't really trained towards it because I, I asked my coaches and, and stuff if, if it's even productive to try to, to try to train that sprint and, and up it by a little bit. And a lot of them just tell me like, no, I mean, it, it's mostly a, a genetic factor and, and, um, it's a lot to do with like your lactate production and how, just how your body handles it. And, and yeah, to, to, to try to train it and, and like maybe make a 5% improvement to get to 1200 or something, it would take probably something off of my other abilities. So we just haven't even really touched it. I try to do some sprints here and there on endurance rides, but just to keep those muscles awake. But other than that, <laughs> I'm just kind of accepted that I probably have to win a race solo. Yeah. So what is, uh, and, and you can use, cause I'm sure it's evolved and changes over time, but looking at the tour this year, for example, and we're going to get into more like aligning your peak and everything for that in a bit, but looking at this year's performance at the tour, what is your strength in terms of duration? Like, were you really good at 10 minute, 20 minute, 30 minute, even longer efforts? Like what were you best at during the tour this year? Uh, during the tour, I think uh, it's hard because you're comparing yourself against guys yeah, that specialize in all these disciplines, but I think I did probably the best in, yeah, those longer efforts, like 30 to 60 minutes. It was what I also trained for, for like two, three months before very specifically. Uh, I basically had a really long runway into the tour where I wasn't really racing and I had an injury. So it was just a perfect time to like step back and just train for one thing. And we ended up just doing a lot of that, those efforts, really long efforts on long climbs and uh, so I ended up probably excelling on, yeah, longer climbs there. But I think in general, my best power output is between, like, if you just look at numbers uh, on a chart compared to other guys, it's probably between five and 15 minutes, five and 10 minutes, even. That's probably where my best power is. But then when you put me in a race with specialists, it's like, I'm never, I can't compete against like Wout Van Aert on a five minute climb or, or a 10 minute climb. So yeah, in, in the tour, it was like, once you get into a breakaway, you have to, then you take away half the, or you, and you're only racing against 20 guys. And then you have to look at, okay, what of those 20 guys can do, you know, 30 minutes at this power. And then, yeah, I think I was probably best at those longer climbs. Got it. Keegan, have you seen your power profile like change? Uh, I mean, with mountain biking, you kind of always have to have a bit of punch, right? But yeah. so you've probably had that from the beginning, but you've done a lot of longer stuff now where it's like the punch might be less important. Has your profile changed? What are you best at? Yeah. I mean, I think it's funny. I think my, like my single effort punch has almost gotten better because it seems like in gravel racing, when you go, it's like really when it counts, it's almost more like towards a road racing style. Whereas when I, for XCO, like we really trained repeatability a lot. Right. So it was like, you'd have to get really good at doing 500 Watts for just a minute or so, but you just do it over and over and over. Whereas, you know, in gravel racing, I feel like you're doing a lot more tempo sweet spot and there might be like one, a couple efforts where it's like five minutes flat out, which actually that unbound out was like the split at like mile probably 120, 130. It was like a pretty much a, I mean, it was five minutes to the floor. So I feel like, and then there's obviously there's normally, I mean, now gravel racing, it's, there's a lot of sprints at the end. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, it seems like my efforts have changed a little bit. Uh, and also I'm just not training those, the repeatability quite as much as I used to just focus yeah. more on endurance and, uh, yeah. So what are you best at right now? Do you think like, what, like uh, in terms of a power profile perspective? I mean, for me, it'd probably be probably long, like 
it's hard to say uh um, probably like longer climbs right now you know uh just with like how i trained for leadville and um nationals and whatnot so i think you know that like 30 to 60 minute like effort um yeah i'd say that's probably right now that's that's probably my best so it's Keegan, interesting, right? Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Chad. <clears throat> well, Jonathan told me a while back that you had shifted your training more toward tempo and sweet spot and longer days. And I was always yeah. curious if you did that in anticipation of shifting over to gravel or were you doing that just because you had plateaued in other ways that made you good as an XC racer? Uh, a bit of both. I mean, I've, obviously, I mean, I've found that training works really well for me for XCO as well. So it's mm. kind of hard to say. Like I've had some of my best XCO races just off, you know, like couple 30 hour weeks. So it's like, I think for me, I've found just having a bigger motor is helpful. I made my repeatability is not quite as good, but I can ride you know, pretty high pace the whole time. And, uh, yeah, so it's been, it's hard to say exactly, you know, what came first there. Um, mm. cause we kind of switched to like the more, the longer, you know, more higher volume training. And it, ha- it just so happened that I was also like kind of switching more toward gravel, but I still gotcha. like, I mean, I still, you know, the fat tire crits and whatnot, I can still throw down a pretty good, like 30 second sprint and, uh, and whatnot. So, um, yeah, I'd say it's overall, it's kind of maybe a little, almost more well-rounded in a sense. Mm-hmm. Kind of interesting, right? How like, uh, Mateo, you and Keegan both, you know, you guys prove that specificity matters, right? Even though you'd think that as you get to the, and probably to the pointiest end of the spear, that genetics start to just predefine, you know, what you are best at, but at the same token, specificity still matters you know yeah uh, i mean pretty close yeah you know, like training for unbound it was just focused on long you know sweet spot efforts on the flats and then we switched to leadville start training for climbing and you just get better at it and you lose weight and yeah mm-hmm. so i think you can still kind of shift you can't shift dramatically like i could never like mateo said i could never sprint with the top sprinters in the world but i'd probably win a sprint out of most small bunches so like you can kind of get better at things but you're not going to totally shift what you're good at to a yeah. certain extent. Definitely. Mateo, why is uh racing in Europe such a hard nut to crack from your perspective? I think maybe Keegan's shared this maybe on the podcast. I can't remember if you have from your perspective, Keegan, and we'll get into that. Even if you have mentioned it before, we'll get into it. But uh Mateo, from your perspective, because we see a lot of athletes from our country go over and it's hard to replicate success that they have, or even and I, I want to define success a bit more like replicate or their ability to be able to perform to their potential seems handicapped right when they go over to europe yeah. like and they just can't do it they can't express their potential well what, what do you say about that from your perspective yeah i've thought about this a lot uh it was i mean it, it's the biggest challenge in going to europe i think it all comes down to how how the roads are made in europe uh and mm-hmm. and and how that affects the race so basically roads in europe are way narrower usually and way more chaotic so you have road furniture the road is they basically a lot of times are paving over what used to be a dirt path between villages so the road doesn't take these logical like straight lines between places they just take how the how the path was originally created so the roads will be curving without really logic and 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 kind of narrowing and widening at points yeah that that doesn't really have reason but a lot of, it just creates a race racing scenario where positioning is is in road racing the most important factor at least in in more so i would say in in u23 and junior racing than pro racing i mean pro racing obviously positioning matters but 
once you get to pro racing, there's a lot, yeah, you have a team around you to help you and, and it's, it's just a different task, but in U23 and junior racing, when you're actually trying to make it a professional in Europe and you're kind of on your own, I mean, almost every guy is, there's no, there are some nations or, or teams that, uh, can do well and, and help, help each other out with positioning. But a lot of times the racing is so chaotic that you end up, yeah, everyone's just a solo rider and you're all trying to get to the front before whatever X key point. Um, and so it, it creates a scenario where when positioning is the most important factor in the race, everyone, everyone knows that. I mean, that's not a mystery at all. And it creates a very, it, it creates super stressful racing. So you're, everyone kind of knows where the points are, where you need to be. And so everyone knows that you have to be there. And so you end up accelerating long before those points. And then the racing is just dramatically different than an American road race where it's like, basically in most American road races, the East coast is a little bit different. They have different road structure and, and the roads are yeah slightly different than the West coast. But a lot of the racing in the U S that I've done, um, are on really wide and straight roads most of the time. Mm-hmm. And you basically have, there's no challenge in moving up. You can move up whenever you want to. The road is so wide that you can be 10, 15 across a lot of times. And, and it's like, it, it's more, it more comes down to the numbers you can do because it's like, if you can move up whenever you want to, then everyone, there's no, it takes away the stress component. And then you enter the climb, everyone's more or less fresh mentally, physically. And, and you just kind of do the, you know, if it's a mountaintop finish, you do the, you do the power numbers you can do. And, and that's that, or if it's a sprint finish, then, you know, you have plenty of room to have a lead out train and, and do your sprint safely. Whereas in Europe, there's just way more factors. It's like, you can spend so many KJs getting to the last climb of a race, just in mistakes positioning, or, or if you're just slightly too stressed about whatever, or, you know, you can just waste a bunch of energy and then you arrive at the last climb and, you think, you know, you know, the numbers that you think you can do for 15 minutes and you'll do a hundred Watts less because you'll just be, you'll be toast. Uh, and that's what a lot of, I think the mistakes that, I mean, ever, everyone makes when they first come to Europe as Americans is it's like, you don't really know, you haven't raced over there at all. And a lot of these guys have for 10, 10 years before you, like a lot of the euros and they kind of know what an actual key point is and what a, what a key point where you don't have to be upfront and they know the tricks to positioning and the things that take kind of years to, to learn. And so they just have a huge, you know, a leg up on, on you and, and they know how to race it. And it's very much technique based. So a lot of it's like, you know, these guys will in training be able to produce numbers that they'll never, you know, for years be able to produce in a race until they can figure that out. And hmm. A lot of guys, I guess, double down on some guys double down on, okay, I need to learn the positioning and the technique and they go and try to race a lot. And that's usually what, what helps you get there as a professional. And there's some guys that double down on training and they think, okay, well, I just need to become a lot better, a lot. I need to like grow my motor a lot so I can arrive, you know, at the last climb a lot better. And, and I don't see that working a lot of times. I think that's the mistake most guys make is that they try to go and train the house down afterwards because they think, oh, these guys are just so much fitter than me or so much, yeah, just in a way better place physically. But I think most of it is that they just know how to arrive to the key point a lot fresher. And then, Mateo, to, to probably further the anxiety <clears throat> of what it's like being in the, the European peloton and probably to 
complexify the task of moving around, moving up, just just holding position even. Correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like the fields over there are quite a bit more tightly knit. Like riders seem to ride so deadly close to one another, whereas with the American road races, it – and it's probably a product of what you just described. The roads are wider. Yeah. They're they're more predictable, so they don't have to bottle up like that because they're not all bucking for position. Is that I mean that just Definitely. has to make that whole job that much tougher? Definitely, definitely, it's a product of of that. It's a product of the how how the roads are built, and it's like when there's a road and you can only fit four wide, it's like uh, people are gonna be way closer to each other and try to you know try to fit as close as possible, and and everyone's fighting to be in the front, so. It, it's the same thing. It's, it all comes down to how the roads are, are made and how it affects, how it affects the racing. It's just a completely different, um, yeah, it's just a completely different thing. Mm-hmm. Is any of that similar Keegan to the, does that cross over to cross country Olympic mountain biking and why that in and of itself is also a tricky thing to decode? Yeah, honestly, I think it's exactly the same thing. <laughs> uh, I mean, obviously it's like, it's slightly different because you're not, racing on pavement and whatnot but honestly it's like the same thing that these guys have been doing it so long that they know how european racing works and how like you just have so much more talent shoved into this small course right so there's 150 guys that you line up for a world cup or even just like a some c1 or hc race and everyone's fighting for position for the first basically you're fighting for position the whole race, right? There might be some places where it's chill, but even then you're going flat out to try and hold position before the descent, or maybe you want to be in the front before a climb. And uh, yeah, it takes some time to just learn how to race over there and how to be, how to be aggressive and hold your spot. You know, you're starting in the bunch with the wide handlebars and like, it's, it's pretty hectic and it definitely, it took me a long time to even get close to cracking that nut. (laughs) And uh, yeah, it's, it's a similar experience in a way. I mean, it's different, but, uh, it's all in the end, it's all positioning and just how, how aggressive you can be and knowing where to move up and knowing where it's efficient to do that versus just using your, your power just to roll through the field. So I think uh, a lot of those guys are just so much better at it than Americans are. And I think over here, I think it's starting to get a little bit better. Like the kids now, like they're racing with fields of over a hundred when they're racing at us nationals and you know, even the smaller cross country races have pretty good size junior fields. Whereas when I was a junior, like there was 30 or 40 kids. So I think to get that experience, you had to go to Europe and now they're, you know, the, I watched like the U S national start and it looks just like a European junior start. These kids are just going flat out, you know? So I think it's, I think it's cool to see that it has changed a little bit over here in the sense that maybe they'll be slightly more prepared for when they go over to Europe. I mean, sure. The tracks are different. Like, way more aggressive and way more technical and all that's a whole like technical side of things is a whole nother like can of worms that you have to figure out how to do. Like it took me a long time to learn how to ride in the mud and the wet roots and rocks and stuff. Like I'm a great bike handler over here in the dry, but then, you know, going to Europe as a junior, it's just like a whole new experience. Like I'd never ridden wet roots in my life really, you know? So I mean, I came back after I got my teeth kicked in a few times, I came back and we just like, <laughs> whenever it would rain, there was like two trails, like ride in park city that were covered in roots and stuff. So you just, just go to repeats and you just like, just figure it out, you know? And then when you go over there too, sometimes you're like, well, I'm just going to go intentionally go ride in the rain on the most technical trail I know. So I can take advantage of like actually learning how to, how to do this. Um, you know, it definitely paid off. Like now I, I wouldn't say I'm quite as proficient as the, the European riders in the, in the rain, but I'm like good enough that I'm not going to lose a race because of it. 
So sure. I still don't enjoy it. You know, I don't love racing, <laughs> racing in the mud and stuff, but I can do it if I have to. So I think Are that's we... translated over to, you know, marathon racing and gravel as well. It's the same kind of thing. Um, so, yeah. So are we, I'm going to flip the coin. Are we uniquely good at anything here in the States that would, if the European riders came over that they would have a hard time with Mateo? Yes. Yes. We are really good at training. Uh, that's one thing I've really noticed is that Americans, just because I think there's less racing opportunity here and you grow up racing maybe 10 times a year, if you're lucky, uh, as an American, maybe in California a little bit more, but most guys on the road are racing so few or so, so little that they end up, you know, becoming really good at training and you learn a lot about how to train yourself without that racing stimulus. And so, oh yeah, I think a lot of these American guys go over to Europe and they're just shocked at how, you know, they talk to their teammates. If you're on a European team, it's like, these guys know nothing about physiology or training or whatever and it's like they're way better than you still and it's like how is that that possible and it's it's truly like mind-blowing it it like turns your whole yeah it turns your whole worldview on your head you're just like because as a kid you're just like i mean at least i was very conscious about everything i was doing training and and you know what what numbers and you know this and that and and you go over there and you talk i mean i went over when i was u23 i was on the ag2r development team and this bunch of i was the only non-french guy on the team and these guys you know they would race 60 to 70 days as a junior you know from 14 13 14 years old they're racing 70 days a year and it's like when you're racing that much yeah you have a bit of training in the winter but it's mostly just aerobic conditioning so they would do like you know, hikes and skiing and Nordic skiing. And like, they would just do anything that just gets their heart rate up for any amount of time. And a lot of them wouldn't even record it. You know what I mean? They, they weren't like a lot of them, for example, they'd ride on the road bike and they didn't even have power meters or the team gave them power meters and they didn't even connect them to their garment. And it was like, <laughs> these guys were doing, I mean, things in races that were incredibly impressive. Like a lot of them are really good pros now. Um, and they didn't train with power until maybe one year before they turned professional, you know? And it's like, mm-hmm. I think that's something Americans have a leg up on is that we also have a culture of like teaching training science and having good coaches. And that's like one of the staples of being a good athlete here is you have, you know, a good coach and you do, you're very disciplined about your, you know, zone control and you stay within your power zones and whatever. And, over there, it's just a very much racing culture. So they, they're they're way more concerned about how you perform in a race than how you perform in training. And that's, I think, the big difference is in the U.S. We're, you know, we're very conscious about how we perform in training. We're trying to impress a coach or we're trying to, because it's all we have. We just don't have the amount of racing. Can I ask a question, Matteo, on, and this is like an absurdly uh, op- like vague question, so I apologize, but I have confidence you'll take it in a good direction. But how do you get in breakaways? And the context I'm talking about is the breakaways that you are in in the Tour de France. Cause, and, and does that, yeah. does the Grand Tour context change the breakaway and like how you get into breakaways? Totally. I mean, for most of us average folks, when we're in a race and a breakaway happens, it's probably a bit different. But I, I still bet that we could learn from the circumstances and context that you face. So how did you get into the breakaways at the Tour? Yeah, it's a super complicated thing. Uh, it's something that has frustrated me so much over the last three years of being a professional 
in the world tour, it's something that's very, it's a very unique thing, uh, getting into the breakaway. It's like, there's a weird balance of, uh, of, you know, teams controlling it. So a team, you know, usually the leaders Jersey team or, or the team that people think will lead the race in the future. So in the first few days, it's like, there's nobody in the leaders Jersey, or maybe there is someone, but it's a sprinter and they're not actually leading the race for GC. So people look at a team, you know, with the quote unquote favorites for the GC of the race and they look at them to control. So there's this weird balance of like, okay, we have to respect there's just like a weird respect in the Peloton and it, and it's a very old school sport. So it's like, you know, there's a team controlling and then there's guys trying to get away and, and it's, and it's a very push and pull thing. And you know, some days it'll go it, the hardest part for me in these world tour breakaways is that sometimes it'll go the first attack, right? So it'll be, there's a red car neutral zone. You'll be, everyone's on the red bumper of the red car, red car accelerates guys are sprinting into the draft of the car and those six <laughs> guys get away. And then there's a wall up and you can't go. Right. So some days that'll happen. Some days it'll take 90 minutes, two hours for it to go. And it, it's, it's completely unpredictable. There's no way to know. That, that's what I've, that's kind of the thing that I've taken peace in is that there's literally no way to predict it. Uh, your directors will have an idea of what's going to happen for the day in the bus. And they'll tell you, you know, in the meeting, you know, we think on a stage like this and with this team controlling, it's going to go quickly. It's going to go in the first couple moves. So you better be on, you know, you better be first row on the neutral and you better be in the first attack if you want to make it. Uh, and, you know, 50% of the time they're wrong. It's like, hmm. there's no way to predict it. So in my mind, what I was trying to do in the tour is like, you pick a few guys. That That's the best way I would, I would find it. It's like, you pick a few guys that you think are a interested in making the breakaway and B uh, have, you know, the ability or, or are good at making the breakaway. So like a guy like Leonard Kamna, or I don't know, there's just these guys that are consistently in the breakaway and it's like, okay, you kind of watch them and still it's not bulletproof at all. I mean, they can miss the breakaway 50% of the time too. And they do. And you can tell they're, you know, sometimes the wall goes up and you see guys and they're just like pounding their bars. And it's just like, <laughs> once, once the, the problem is once the wall goes up, once enough guys at the front say, you know, maybe there's a team at the front kind of blocking or there's just enough guys who are tired or whatever. It's like, once the wall goes up, then there's just, then there's this respect thing. And it's like, you know, if you attack through the wall, it's super disrespectful. And mm. it's like, uh, like, uh, rolling through feed zones, maybe. Same, same type of deal, same type of deal. It's like it, it happens and, you know, uh, weirdly like the smaller teams are allowed to do it. So like if, if total energies or, or if Arkea misses the break, you know, they'll kind of slip through the grass on the outside and attack solo to the break when it's still at 30 seconds and nobody will like, there might be a few guys yelling, but it's, it's, it's more or less accepted because it's like, okay, that's their main objective in the race is to make the breakaway. And, a lot of time they're not the favorite for the race. So the teams are like, okay, it's not a big deal. But when I do it or when a guy on a world tour team does it, I mean, it creates a huge fuss. And a lot of times, you know, you'll have the leader of the race attack and get onto your wheel to, to shut you down and then, you know, yell at you. Mm -hmm. And it, it's just not worth it. So yeah, uh, it's, it's a very complicated thing. And, and I know that's not a good answer. And I, I, like, I haven't figured it out myself. Yeah. I did make it into a few breakaways in the tour. And the way I did that was, marking a few guys and then 
all those days I made it were days where it took two hours for the break to go. So mm-hmm. it ends up taking so long. You're, you're attacking and, and going full gas for such a long amount of time that it ends up going more or less on legs. So like you, mm-hmm. it goes and goes and goes and, and the, the group is getting slowly strung out and there's enough guys like doing efforts to where it's like guys will do a couple efforts and then get, you know, just kind of slide back in the Peloton because you just can't stay up front that, that whole time. Cause it's a super chaotic place up front. So a lot of times once it, you know, for me, once it, once it doesn't go for 20 minutes in, in at least in a grand tour, it won't go for 90 minutes. So, you know, that mm. if it, if it hasn't gone in the first 20 minutes, you just kind of wait, you wait in the front and, and you, you try to be in the big splits that might, that could go, but you, you try not to spend energy. And then once it gets down and you see guys are really on the limit and you see you guys are like starting to really suffer around you, that's when you start attacking and participating. And that's the way I made it. It was just like, you go when others can't. I mean, you, you, you make the split when, when simply guys, if, even if they wanted to go to go with the break, they couldn't. Uh, and it's, yeah, it just ends up going on, on fitness and yeah. And then you, I mean, that's the other problem is you enter the break and you're already kind of on the limit and all, all three of those days that I got, that I got on the break, I was, you know, I entered the break and I, was almost full gas when I got there. I was like, you know, completely spent and we still had over a hundred K to go, but you have to think those days, almost everyone is in the break. No one had an easy ride to get there. And then Mateo, the days that you think the break's going to go early, maybe your sport directors have tipped you off to that possibility. It's got to be pretty tough to position yourself at the front then, right? If people know the break's going to go early and they all want to be right behind the lead vehicle, it's got to yeah. be basically what we, what we just described, fighting for position and just ang- yeah. anxiety for what could be a 15-kilometer neutral. 100%. Uh, a lot of times the neutral zones are super chaotic and dangerous. Uh, hmm. Yeah, you. Have, I mean, exactly. You, you have either some climb that's in the first 10K of the race where everyone's like, okay, that's where the break's going to go. Or sometimes we start on a climb and, and it's just like hmm. – you know, the, the first, the first move that goes is probably going to be it. Cause it'll be easy to block the road. It's a narrow road, whatever. So in the neutral zone, you just have guys, you know, kind of kamikaze and, you know, you have guys like jumping up on the sidewalk, swerving back into the bunch and it, it, it's, yeah, it, it does become super, you just have to kind of be those days. If you want to make it, you just have to be, kind of be an asshole about it. Uh, that's, sure. that's what it comes down to is you have to kind of push guys out of the way and make room for yourself and, not let guys in behind you. And yeah, it's not, it's not super nice environment in those neutral zones. I'll tell you what. <laughs> That's, uh, that, that, That's that, <laughs> 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 yeah. uh, is it similar to gravel or mountain bike racing, Keegan? Uh, uh you say I mean, the gravels, the gravels a weird dynamic because sometimes you have the women in the bunch as well at the front. And I mean, you have to like, it's weird. Like there's, there's this weird dynamic at the gravel races. Like obviously it's aggressive and um, everyone's packed into the front. And there's like amateurs who probably shouldn't be in that mix. And it just like, <laughs> it's weird. Cause you have to be aggressive, but you can't be like overly aggressive. Like you can, when you're racing other pros, you know, or those of the same sex, it's like a weird, it's just, it's just a weird thing. I don't really don't enjoy it. <laughs> I wish everything <laughs> was a little more separate. Uh, but yeah. Then there's neutral starts in mountain biking as well. So there'd be, at some of the, the marathon races I've done in Europe, there'll be like a neutral start, the first 5k and you have like, you know, there's like 80 riders packed behind this car or a motorcycle 
you know, it's the same thing. People are jumping on sidewalks and they're trying to jump back in. And like, you have the entire field where if it was like you were racing, it would just be strung out because someone would be willing to go or a teammate or whatever. But when it's neutral, you have the entire field packed into like this tiny little bunch and everyone's trying to get the draft of the car or the motorcycle. And like, there's, I mean, I've seen like straight up fights, like people pushing each other around and it's, it sounds like it's a very familiar thing. Cause then it got when a neutral drops it pretty much, that means like single track is like a couple hundred meters away or a small fire road. So then you're racing for that. And it's like, instead of racing for the break, you're racing for the whole shot and everyone's all like pent up and anxious. And, um, some of these guys might not have ever been in a bunch like that. So you have that side of things as well. And yeah, it's, Sounds oddly familiar, I guess. <laughs> we've we've talked a lot offline about Leadville, Keegan, but is the, was the Leadville start chaotic and scary for you? I don't know uh, if it is. I don't know if you're just perfect. No, at the front I think it's everyone kind of sits like, behind you. Yeah, I mean, I think Leadville to start short enough and it's downhill and it's fast that I think uh, like for the men, for like the strong guys at the front, it's quite easy. Just you're like, I'm just going to take wind. You just got to get small and like you just, you know, you can ride 300 whatever watts into the wind, whereas a the women they can't play that game they can't just like roll to the front and be like oh it's only 15 minutes it's worth just doing this to stay out of the mess so they're like back in the scrum fighting for position with like scrum amateurs there, and man. like it's chaos and, and the men like you know like it's <laughs> yeah. it's chaos back there like i'll look back and like you see like, just like you're just like i'm glad i'm not back there yeah like, i can't imagine what it was like for sophia the first 50 miles of unbound because like it's they're not big enough to make the holes and they don't have the horsepower to just like roll up the side like we do. So it's like, yeah, it's just gotta be horrible. But at the same time, I feel like there is some level of respect, at least among the pro men that like you give the women like a little bit of a bubble, you know, cause in in my mind they're racing their race and we're racing ours. You don't want to like disrupt what they're doing. And um, yeah, so it's, I think, I think that's kind of a common thing among the men, maybe the amateurs it's everyone's for themselves. I, I don't know what it's, what what well, happens then but yeah man it's it's chaos it's hunger games back there uh, with all of us. <laughs> yeah. so, um i want to talk about timing peaks because one thing i noticed in uh your interviews that you had mentioned i, I believe a couple of times with teo was like you came to the tour de france this year and you mentioned that you had that that injury and then you had that long block of kind of uninterrupted training so no racing coming into it but you mentioned that like you had timed your peak with the tour and yeah. and that's why you were frustrated at fourth place because you knew that you were capable of first place with the form that you had. Um, and so, but I want to talk about timing that because one thing that I've noticed, and and I want to get both of your perspectives on this. One thing I've noticed with less experienced riders is they do and Chad, I'm sure you've noticed this too. They err on the side of doing too much coming into an event, whereas a more experienced rider always seems to leave themselves plenty of room and they would err on the side of doing less rather than doing too much. But I want to ask the very basic question to see where you take it of how do you time your peak so that it lands on the most important days? Okay. Not to derail you, but before we get to that, does anybody come to the tour without peaking for it? Are there riders there who are just riding through the tour de France? Not the tour. Okay. Okay. Uh, there are guys that have made mistakes. I mean, that, that come to it, you know, either too trained or whatever, but they all try to make their peak tour for sure. Okay. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Back on track. Good point. Yeah. Yeah. Great. I mean, look, I don't have an, I mean, I'm not a sports (laughs) sports scientist here or coach. Uh, all I guess I know is my experience doing it. And, and I did the Giro last year. That was my first grand tour. And, and I basically me and my coach together, I mean, 
it was just a huge mistake. Uh, and so from that, I kind of learned the Giro last year, basically I trained really well all winter and, uh, I ended up being in super good form at, at you know, Provence and Paris Nice in 2021. And so at Paris Nice, they saw I was in good form and they wanted to, or before then they, they saw I was in good form coming into Paris Nice. And so they, they didn't really have anyone else to contest the race. Other guys were doing Toronto the same week. So they're like, okay, Mateo, we're going to give you a big shot and you're going to, you know, race GC at Paris Nice, uh, which is obviously a giant opportunity and something that I didn't want to take lightly. So me and my coach together, we were like, okay, we just go all in now for Paris Nice. So in the month, month or two before I did, you know, a ton of intensity and a ton of really, really hard training in February to get in good form for Paris Nice and try to target the GC there. And, and I did, and Paris Nice was eight days. And it was like my, my first time ever doing GC for, a, you know, such a long race. And especially at a world tour level, it was just a ton, a ton of load. Basically it was you know, 300 TSS for eight days, 300 or more TSS for eight days. And every um, day you're saying yeah, every, every day, day for eight, eight days. days. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> and so, yeah, I came out of it shattered. Uh, and the team was like, well, you just, I, I was eighth GC in Paris, which for me was a huge step. And uh, yeah, it was a huge result for me and, and for the team too. They, yeah. they saw, you know, that I was super good. And so they were like, okay, well, we'll take advantage of this form. <laughs> so they're like, oh, you're in great form, which is what happens in these World Tour teams. You know, like the, 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 the managers of the team are sitting there, you know, and they're having meetings to discuss calendar. And it's very, yeah, for, for them, it's like, well, we have this guy who just was eighth GC in Paris. And it's like, okay, even if he's a little bit tired, he could probably take that form and go to a lower level race. Because that's Paris is a World Tour race where, you know, it's highly contested by some of like the best, GC guys in the world a lot of times. And so they're like, okay, well, he could take that form and go to a point one race and probably win. So they were like, okay, now you'll do Kobe Bartoli, which started seven days after Paris and was another, I think, six or eight day race or something in Italy. And it was a point one race. So it was a lower level race. And and so yeah, long story short, we 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 instead of resting after Paris, we kind of just try to keep the the quote unquote keep the engine running, which is like the worst mistake you can make. And <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I just kept training and went into Kobe Bartoli and, you know, really went deep every day there, even though I was not performing super well, didn't do well. And, and so after they were like, well, okay, we should probably rest a little bit from that. But it's like, if we can take this big block of training from, from the spring and we can convert it into the Giro, you can do a really good Giro. <laughs> and so I was like, okay. So the, the kind of the train just kept on going. Right. And so I was like, okay, I'll, I'll take Kobe Bartley. And they're like, you just need to absorb these two races you did. And then we'll go to altitude and we'll train for the Giro. And I was like, okay. So I didn't take rest after Kobe Bartley. And I kind of went straight to altitude afterwards, went straight up to Sierra Nevada with the team. And we did a month in Sierra Nevada where I wasn't really performing great in training, but I had the depth to be able to kind of do it all and do it all well enough. You know, it was like, we had Mark Soler as a leader. So I wasn't like so super stressed or concerned about performing myself, but I trained super hard and I literally started the Giro the most tired I'd ever been in my life, you know, on the first day of the Giro for <laughs> oh, the first stage of the Giro, I was completely shattered. You know, and I was like, you, yeah, it was like from, from the team's perspective, they've seen, you know, like the team's been around 40 years. So they've seen tons of guys do this. And and for, from their perspective, it's not a big risk. They're just like, well, we can, 
you either absorb it and you do super well or you don't and you do badly. And yeah, I ended up having like the worst year ever. I was just like completely packed fodder in the group pedo every single day, every single day in the group pedo. Not didn't have one single day where I was, you know, decent at all. And it put me in a hole for months afterwards. Like I came out of the Giro and had to take like three weeks completely off the bike. And even then I wasn't, I wasn't recovered. And it took me until the fall to even start doing well again. So yeah, all, all that being said, I came to the tour this year, like super conscious of, I wanted, cause seeing that Giro was like, you know, I saw in the third week, what would happen. It was like, guys were just all in the limit. It was like, you know, you, you see these opportunities. It's like everyone's completely screwed because everyone has a job in the first two weeks, right? Everyone's helping their GC leader or doing lead outs or a GC leader themselves or a sprinter. And so you enter the third week and it's kind of like this weird thing where everyone's everyone's really tired, but everyone's on different levels of fatigue. So you see like, okay, if I'm able to be in that third week with or second or third week with good legs and I didn't, and I did it right. It's like, you know, you could win a stage. It's like, it's not everyone's performances are greatly blunted by that usually. Uh, and so, yeah, that was kind of my motivation this year to like come to the tour with, with good legs and fresh enough to be able to like take the first week, take the second week and get into the third week with, you know, similar performances that I could have done the first week, not, not actually accumulate so much fatigue. And so, yeah, I ended up doing well with, with the injury, which is funny to say, but my, you know, I had a, I tore my hamstring at Paranese, uh, this year, 2022. And so I had to take like three weeks off after that. So it forced me to rest after, you know, a big winter and a big Paranese because I had the same kind of lead and they wanted me to target Paranese as GC and whatever. So I was forced to rest. And so I kind of came out of it and was like, okay, if I can just you know, train well to the tour and not accumulate too much fatigue, it'll be good. And and that's kind of the only way that I know how to time a peak is just like, don't, don't go to the well too many days beforehand. Don't, you know, you just have to train well and manage, manage that fatigue. So like, even when I went to altitude this year before the tour, we were doing one day blocks in order to not accumulate fatigue. So we'd have one really hard training day, like one six hour day. And then we'd have a rest day or a recovery day, one six hour day, one recovery day. So it's like in that way, you kind of slow, you, you, you make your peak a, a lot slower. So you're actually building fitness at a slower rate, but you're, you're accumulating way less fatigue. So you're not actually going super deep day in, day out. And, and I think that helped me a lot. And especially at, at altitude where you have these additional stressors like altitude. And, and in that case, I was also doing like heat training. So I was just adding in a ton of extra stimulus. I think it helped a lot to do such little blocks. It's like, you just do a lot of intensity, but you just, you don't do these three, four day blocks where you can really go to the well and, and do a lot of damage to yourself. And yeah, I mean, that was just all, all that is just listening to your coach, I guess. And just having a good coach because I, I, I wouldn't know how to do this stuff on my own. Like, uh, timing a peak is is like a magic thing it's like a physiology is not super you know it, it's not set in stone so you can't really there's no formula to it it's like you just have to watch yourself and and see how you feel and it was like yeah i never felt in a way i never felt like i did in the whole spring of 2021 this year so i knew that i wasn't fatigued that was the only way to do it and then mateo how closely coached are you does your coach coach you? And I would assume a few other riders is any amount of your training entirely up to you. How's that work? Uh, no, we're, we're, we have 
so basically in the world tour now there's a rule where you have to have internal coaching so you have to be coached by team staff um <laughs> so you have an internal coach uh with the team and he coaches i think six other guys in the team so he has six athletes and that's his full-time job and yeah okay. it's it's very closely coached i mean it's all i'm in daily contact with him and uh yeah i, I don't have a lot of say in it like uh, I mean, I could, if I wanted to, but I, I, I like to put my trust in the coach. Like, I don't, I didn't, I don't have a degree in this. I don't, I didn't go to school for it. So I like to just kind of, yeah, trust, trust hundred percent what he says and just try to give him as much feedback so that he can do his job well. And so like, try to just tell him how I'm feeling all the time, tell him how the day went, but leave it all up to him because I don't, I don't like the idea of coaching myself where it's like, you know, I, I just don't think I have enough experience or knowledge to be able to do it. Or bandwidth. I mean, you've got enough sure, on your plate yeah. without having to figure out your own training. Yeah. yeah. This So like the principles that I'm getting from that, the basics are don't overestimate your abilities, like coming into things, like err on the <clears> side <throat> of giving yourself more rest than you think, which kind of jives with what we say for a lot of time. People are like, oh, I, I can do a high volume plan or a mid volume plan, but we recommend that people go a bit lower than that and, and see how that works out first. But then also... When you come into things, make sure you give yourself that that easy sort of rest. Um, Keegan, how about you? Because yeah. you've had this lifetime Grand Prix this year, um, which in most cases has had the events somewhat spread out. Whereas with cross country Olympic, sometimes you'd have like three weekends in a row where you would be racing over in Europe, and it'd be kind of like and then like a big break, and it'd be uh, kind of interspersed. What have you learned this year about peaking? Because you've clearly done it, like you've managed to. I don't know if you're racing on peak form, but you're managing to race with really good form on these big days. Yeah. I mean, it kind of goes back to what Mateo said about just like managing fatigue. I think, uh, all these races are pretty big, you know, like unbound was, I think it was 600 TSS or something, you know? So it's like <laughs> these huge days, like you have to really manage, like manage your fatigue out of that. And maybe you think you're ready to start training again, but you're def like, I, like I thought I was ready and Jim, the coach is like, ah, oh, let's give you like a few more days and just make sure. And then when we start training, it's like one day on and then one day off and then, you know, one day on and then you're like, okay, now we're feeling good. So we can do maybe do a three day block. And I think you really have to give yourself a little bit more time than you're used to, to recover from these big events. Uh, especially when they're stacked, you know, I had like the 24 hour solo and then I barely got recovered in time for Cape Epic then did Cape Epic. And I think these big races kind of catch up. So it's just a really a matter of managing fatigue and at the same time trying to stay fit. And I think it'd be like, it's hard doing what some of these other athletes are doing, trying to mix in XCO as well. Cause that's like a whole nother, it's like it's just so intense. And these weeks of like XCO training, you have to like rest so hard into the race. And then the race is like, it fatigues you, but you don't get a whole lot of like training stimulus out of it. I think, I don't know. It's just weird balance so for me i've found like definitely more rest is better after and then i can actually hit it pretty hard and come into the race like slightly fatigued um but i think you have to find this balance of you know re like rest and training it's i mean i rely heavily yeah. like mateo as well i rely on my coach pretty much for all that i mean like he'll ask for my opinion like do you think you're ready to start training or whatever and like well if you think if like i think i'm ready he thinks i'm ready then we're probably both on the same page um because sometimes you know you're excited and you want to get back to it but you have to uh maybe like all right you ready let's give yourself two more days and then we'll actually start training or yeah so it's been just balancing balancing that between these races like you said there's space to like kind of weird there's space like a month month and a half which is like enough time that 
you, if you start training like right after one, you might not get recovered in time for the next. Mm -hmm. So, and if you like rest too much, then maybe you'll lose that fitness you had. So it's been this balance of, you know, rest and recovery pretty much all season. Like I built a huge, huge foundation this winter, especially with the amount of these big races I did. And, um, yeah, you kind of just carry it the rest of the season and, you know, you're kind of like slowly going up and down. I don't think for the series I've ever had like one big peak. I definitely like was targeting, you know, lead boat, Leadville and steamboat the way that weekend, but at the same time, like I had mountain bike nationals two weeks before. So I think like, you're just, you know, I've been just trying to ride in this wave all season and trying to like maintain a, a level of fitness without going too high or too low. So sure. Um, yeah. Cause like, I think our racing is a bit different that like on the roads and I'm, you know, they have, you'll just can like your job is just to maybe have a certain job for the first, you know, hundred K or whatever, then you're just doing whatever. Um, but for us, you race every race to win. So it's, especially with the unbounce, like the, the lifetime series, you go into every race and have to win every race or you try to. So it's a little bit different as well. I think, um, the way you have to peak and train for them. So. Sure. So yeah. what I'm getting from that is the importance of the subjective feedback from both of you guys too, in the sense of like, you can have the plan, but you need to pay attention to what you're feeling and you need to make those adjustments, uh, appropriately for that when you go into things and yeah. the best error on the side of caution. And can I ask, yeah, I think the feedback think? is, oh. is huge. Mm -hmm. Like yeah. as a day after unbounder, I was just supposed to go do five hours of zone two, which is, a real, I mean, it's a relatively easy day for me. I should be able to do that almost any time. And I barely made it back up big cottonwood. Like I was so shattered. Like I was like, I had to, <laughs> I was my, just cruising. I was like, I have to ride 150 watts all the way home. This is going to take this ride's going to be seven hours. And that's just the way Welcome it is to living like the rest of us, Keegan. Yeah. So, and then, um... you know, two, two more days off and I was ready to train again. So I think, but that's, that's such a strong be... point because your training is a, it's a living changing thing. And if you're not constantly communicating yeah. those changes to your coach, then right. you're, you're flying blind or in this oh, case really? with train a road with your uh, post-workout surveys, right? Like that's yeah. like, yeah, that's there's like gotta the be feedback. You have to have that feedback in there because otherwise, and it's easy because we're all super ambitious, right? So we'll drive ourselves into the ground with the best intentions. Like, it's not like we're, you know, uh, doing anything, you know, ill intentioned for sure. It's just, it's just how it goes. Um, no, totally. I think what Keegan said too there about, like those days after your race where you just went, like, I think people don't realize how much deeper, at least me and Keegan were talking about these other than a ride, like in a race, you can go way deeper than you can in training. You usually, at least we were talking about how we usually do our best numbers in a race. So it's like, if you think, if you think about that, you're doing way more damage to your body in a race. And, and that's one of like the biggest things that I talk about with, with other more experienced pros. And when I ride with them is like, they just have learned this, that it's just a total myth, this idea of like keeping the engine going. And I remember talking with Larry Warbass about it and he was just like, you know, that, that time when I got really fatigued after carrying he was just like, dude, you just need to rest. Like it's the, yeah, it, like there's nothing else to it. You just need to rest. And I was just like, you know, I argued with him and I was like, well, I just did such a good ride. It's like, I should be able to absorb this pretty well. It's like clearly I was in good form to do the good ride, but it's like, no, if you went that deep, you need to like, you just need to have you need to wait until you can effectively train. So you just have to sit there and be really patient after race. It's one of the hardest things to do, but you just have to literally sit there and be super honest with yourself until you can, you can actually, you know, you think you can actually train. And then it, even if you go out on the bike and you, you feel you can't do it in the first few efforts, just pull the plug, just go home and train. I mean, it's like, or sorry, go home and rest. It's like the most important, most important yeah, thing. You can, probably. you can just bury your, your fitness in that good form of fatigue and then it's useless. So I think like, mm -hmm. 
I mean, the biggest thing Jim has told me before is like fitness doesn't just evaporate, right? Like it doesn't, it doesn't just go away. So like, mm-hmm. if you're have it really, like Mateo said, you had a really good pair of knees, fitness isn't just going to evaporate over the course of like three or four days of like really hard rest. Right. Just like yeah. completely chilling. You just need to make sure you like dust that fatigue off and then you'd be ready to go for the next weekend. But if you just keep training through it, like I'm the same way, like, you're like, Oh, I just got keep the engine running. Like I'm, I'm going good. Like we'll just keep going. And you end up just buried in fatigue. And then when you have to go deep at the race, like maybe you train through it and you felt fine, but when you actually have to go hard and dig deep, you just don't have anything there. So, yeah. yeah. So when you feel flat, right? Um, exactly. Yeah. 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 Pride has no place in the adaptation process, right? Like no. it's a physiological process and try as we might to re-engineer it with our own pride and brains. It doesn't really work. Uh, another question I want to ask you, Mateo, is how to fuel a grand tour. How much mm. are you taking in, in terms of grams of carbs per hour when you're on the bike? And then what are you eating afterward, uh, when you're off the bike in the midst of a grand tour? Uh, yeah, we, we Keegan and I were just talking about these. The other day. Uh, I think it's been a big change just in the last like five, 10 years, at least in the world tour of Peloton of how much sports science has entered and just kind of told everyone in these teams, how much more we can, we can take in, um, yeah, this year, uh, yeah, I started this year with a with a new nutritionist where everything's controlled, and I've had, yeah, basically going through the tour, I had like five months where I kind of I weighed everything I ate, and I learned a lot about myself, and yeah, I just learned how much how how important it is to 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 be precise about it, at least at my level, um, and yeah, in the tour we were on the bike, I've learned that I can you know err on the side of at least when you, when you train your gut and you're adapted, I always err on the side of taking in more carbs because I, I, I almost never have an issue of, of, um, you know, over, you know, stomach upset if, if I'm well-trained and we have such good nutrition products now that are so pure in carbohydrates and don't have fiber and these other things that can really slow down your digestion to where it's like, you know, some of those days in the break, I was taking in 160 grams of carbs an hour. Uh, so like two, two bottles of, two 80, 80 gram bottles of carb per hour plus a lot of water to digest it. But, um, I probably wasn't, I mean, according to the science, I probably wasn't taking all that in. I was probably, you know, my body was probably taking in what it needed and then just wasting the rest of it into my, you know, into my intestines. But it's like, I would way rather, especially in a, in the context of a stage race where it all builds. So any day, if you go, if, if on any day of a stage race, you have a deficit, it, it, it compounds as you get into the race. So it's like, even if on day three, I'm 1500 calories in deficit, you know, by I'll, I'll start feeling that day seven when, you know, your, your, your glycogen stores and whatever just don't, aren't, aren't quite as full. So I, I would always err at least on the bike. And this is what pretty much all pros now in world tour teams do is just err on the side of you know, uh, eating as much as you can. So as much as you possibly can have, have your gut trained for, because you're even with uh, the intensities we're riding with, even with 140, 160 grams of carbs an hour, you're still creating a deficit on the bike. So it doesn't, you're still not replicating what you're, you're still not putting in as much as you're, as you're taking out. So I would err always on the side of eating more. Um, and then after Mm -hmm. the stage, you know, we do it so precisely now where it's like, I know exactly what I ate in the morning, what I ate on the bike. And then after the stage, they kind of give me a readout of how many, based on like 
the tests we've done and the metabolic profiles I have, they, they can give me a readout of like pretty close up of exactly how many grams of carbs I burned on that ride or that race. So basically after the race, we take note of that and we see, okay, if I ate this much for breakfast, this much on the stage, this is how much I have to replenish for the rest of the day. Um, and so, yeah, when, when you're precise about it, it's like, it's after the, after the ride where you can modulate that stuff. It's like, if you ate too much on the ride, you can just have a little bit less after, but it's always better to eat, uh, you know, as much as you possibly almost can fit, um, during the race, because you just never know what's going to happen, you know, right. Like right after that, if you're taking in 120, even when it's going easy, 120 grams of carbs an hour, a hundred, even when you're riding easy, it's like, you don't know that in the next five minutes, there's not going to be some, something huge that happens and where you're going to need it and, you know, not be able to replenish it. So yeah, that, that's what we were doing is just eating as much as possible. And I think that's what every, every world yeah. team is doing. What sort of normalized power would you be having like on the days when you were in the breakaway, uh, at the end? And cause I'm, what I'm getting at is like you said, it's impossible to, to fill the void, right? Like Definitely. you're burning way more, but what sort of normalized power were you doing? Uh, probably like three forty, three fifty for for like five hours, uh, five Four. six hours. Yeah, those days in the break at least because you're just kind of you're pushing all day. It's like the fight to get in the break. You're at you know you're doing normalized threshold almost for a couple hours, and then uh, you kind of settle down for maybe an hour, and then you have the final. So it's like at the end of the day, you're almost doing yeah, you're doing like a tempo normalized power the whole day. That's like, so you're just draining carbs. So yeah, you're 160 grams Definitely. even, which is a ton. It's still it's not, you're it's not finishing in a deficit, not mm-hmm. even close. Yeah. And, and it's nice <clears throat> with these tests that we do now. It's like these metabolic tests. They can, they can tell you, like we do a test where they, they can tell me at exactly like each power zone, exactly how many, how many grams of fat and how many grams of carbs I'm burning at that power zone. So it kind of gives you an idea in your head while you're racing to know like, Okay, if I'm doing, if I'm looking down at my power meter right now and I'm doing, you know, 350, 400 watts, I, I, I'm burning way more grams of carbs than I could possibly eat. So it's just like, it gives you a confidence of like, I'm not overeating. And, and, and if you are riding or racing hard, it's almost impossible to overeat while on the bike. It, it's all done afterwards. Uh, it's all done in, in the time, you know, when you eat lunch, dinner, recovery, where you can, where you can go back over and, and, create a surplus but on the bike it's it's almost impossible and this shift yeah. toward precision nutrition is it's such an interesting one on so many levels but i love the fact that i think we're going to see fewer and fewer bad days i mean people are still going to have bad days but we're not going to have athletes on high level teams on, on world tour teams world teams that have that bad day because they didn't nourish right and if they do they only have themselves to blame if, totally. you can't tell me there's a team in the world tour that doesn't have a nutritionist there simply can't totally. be totally, not totally. Be able to compete at that level no it's a big change and, and it's and it's one of the reasons i think our directors point to to, to why the racing has gotten way faster in the last 10 years yeah, because everyone is that. everyone is fully liked up i mean it's like nobody in the last hour of a race now almost everybody is competing at the level that they you know uh, to their potential right there no mm-hmm. one's no one's suffering from i mean it happens some days where and it's like some days your body just doesn't uh, digest what you're taking in. I mean, that, that happens, uh, you know, some days in races, you're just empty no matter. I mean, I've, I've eaten 300 grams of carbs for breakfast and then had 120 in the race and just, you know, not even be able, been able to 
break threshold some days just because your body, mm. you know, your body gets fatigued and it gets tired and some days you can't do it. But if you're fueling right, you just take away 90% of that, that guesswork and you're just giving your body all the, all the tools it needs to perform if it possibly can. Well, long-term, yeah. it's going to build ha- healthier athletes too. And it's going to keep you guys healthier longer. So when you do head into retirement, you're not doing so with a body that's just been beaten the hell up over the course of <laughs> yeah. however many years you've raced at this level. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. It's a smart take. Keegan, you've upped yours too, right? Over, I guess the past two years, really, you've probably upped your take. Yeah. I mean, I'll say it's probably been the last, probably last four years for me. It's really seen, like, I've just slowly like, like, well, like I can handle, handle you know, 80 just fine. Then we went to 90 to hundred and that's fine. And now we're like 120 is good. And now like today I'm over 130 most of the time. So it's crazy. I think, yeah. uh, you should have to train it. You, know, you can't just like all of a sudden, like I'm going to take in 130, 40 grams of carbs an hour. It's like kind of a big process. Like, and after you have to keep doing it, if you take a few weeks off from training it, like you can definitely feel like you have to kind of get back into the rhythm of like ingesting that much on the bike over like a fairly intense ride, you know, at least, or if it's or a really long ride either way. And I think it, your body slowly gets back to getting used to taking in that fuel. So for sure. Uh, but yeah, it's definitely made a big difference. I don't feel like, I mean, training and racing, there's less days where like, you know, you still have days where you just feel like you just feel bad. And sometimes it just doesn't go well or like you feel like you're kind of cracked, but it's not because of fueling. It's either because of you know, maybe you're slightly, you know, you maybe you should rest a little more or whatever, whatever it may be. It's nice to not have to, you're not, like, you know, it's not your feeling on the bike. That's the problem. So it's like one less piece of the puzzle that you're like trying to figure out what's wrong. So you're like, okay, well, I know this is fine because I, this is what I always do and it always works. So it must yeah. be something else. That, whether it's, and, and one key thing you said, Mateo, uh, was the fact that we have nutrition products that are so purely concentrated with just giving you glycogen, you know, glucose, fructose, and, sh- and salt, and that's it. Yeah. Uh, cause we see it in, whether it's, you know, Martin, SIS, endurance, uh, never second, there's like a bunch of different brands now that have these very concentrated, simple foods that, uh, gels or drink mixes that just it's designed for it. Cause we get a lot totally. of people asking like, how in the world do you take this in? And they're like, I brought four honey stinger waffles, like four <laughs> cliff bars and like all that. And it's yeah. like, no, no, like, and each of those companies is developing so its own much. ecosystem too. They recognize that we have to pair this with the right amount of carbohydrate in the fluid mix with the right amount of carbohydrate in yeah. the bars and in the gels. Cause they all have to work together. Totally. Yeah. And any, totally. any extra stuff like that you're piling into your gut that isn't sugar and salt, <laughs> like in its most pure forms, just gets in it's the just way. wasted. It just gets in the way. Yeah, it slows things way, down, yeah. you know? Yeah. 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 No, that, that, that's a pretty funny. Yeah. A lot of people ask me like, no, I try to, cause I tell them like, people ask me, they're like, Oh, like how much do you eat on the bike? Whatever. And I'm like, Oh, you know, if you're doing interval, if you're, if you're doing a training day with intervals or whatever, I would try to eat hundred, 120 grams of carbs. And like, they they don't ask me, but they go out and they do, they try to eat like five cliff bars in an hour. <laughs> and it's just like, yeah. they just like, you know, it's like the craziest thing to them because that is crazy. You're, you're I mean, yeah, there's tons yeah. of fat and, and protein in each one of those bars. So it's like all Fuck that's not work. helping you in the moment that you're training for sure. Yeah. They're going to hang like a whole bushel of bananas on their bike. Right. So, um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, all right. Last, uh, question on this one, Mateo, you have a teammate sitting pretty in GC right now in La Vuelta mm. de España. And I want to know, uh, your take Well, Chad and I both want to know your take mm-hmm. on, on, on the race. Like if you think Remco, cause he's never 
done a grand tour and finished, you know, at, at high up in GC or anything like this. In fact, I don't think he's finished a grand tour. Is that correct? So, no, no, he did the he DNF the Giro last year. Yeah. Yeah. So, do you think he's going to be able to hold it? He obviously is flying right now, but we're you know effectively just at the end of week one, really. Yeah, uh, that's a super. Yeah, I mean. Remco, look, he, he's a he's a freak of nature, the kid. I mean, he does numbers that nobody else can do. But I think also in, in a Grand Tour context where, you know, I've seen it firsthand what these guys, these GC guys have to do day in, day out. And it's one of the most impressive. I mean, it is the most impressive thing I've ever seen in, in sport is that these guys can replicate performances every single day for 20 days. And, and yeah, I think it really does take a special special genetic profile or, or mental profile or something. But uh, I think we'll find out if Remco can do it or not this this Vuelta. I think he's had the preparation that he's needed to be able to figure it out. Um, and we'll just see in that. I think it'll come down to the third week when it all adds up and, and you know, these guys start attacking him. Um, but it's like a guy like Enrique, you know, I, I know his biggest strength is that he's he's uber consistent he's like super super good at maintaining those you know even if he doesn't have probably the peak performances that remco can do he probably couldn't match the numbers remco can do on a one-day race up any climb or whatever but it's that third week in a grand tour when you know enrique is used to coming back and and he can still produce what he did in the first week in that third week so we'll see i'm just super happy to see enrique doing it because yeah the Mm -hmm. tour was a was a pretty negative experience for him and he has had a bad season with like he's crashed like three or four times on the on the exact same side on descents uh so he 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 just lost a ton of confidence in himself and and at the tour it all kind of came to a head when he just couldn't in the group like pretty much do anything he wasn't positioning well he wasn't descending well because he was just scared to ride his bike um so yeah it, it was a tough tour and and to see him like go home at, with all that criticism after the tour and people just, you know, all over the place saying he's a rider and whatever, and that he doesn't deserve X and Y. And then to come and, and do a, you know, start doing a Volta like this, where he's clearly gone back home, worked hard and, and gotten his confidence back on descents and whatever. It, it's cool to see. And it's like, it, I hope, I hope he, I hope he continues and, and finishes on the podium like he did last year at the Volta. Heck yeah. Yeah. That'd be cool. Mm-hmm. I'm going to get into two questions from listeners really quick. We've gone longer than I expected, but the conversation has been great. Uh, hopefully y'all are good with this, but Aaron says, do pro riders still cramp or is it just us amateurs? I've done big events like tour of the Dolomites and never cramped, but I started cramping at Leadville halfway up Columbine and it turned what I thought was going to be a 10 hour day into 13 and a half hours. Absolutely brutal. Uh, says Aaron, uh, Keegan, I want to lead off with this one since you were at Leadville on Columbine, uh, the question, do pro riders still cramp? Uh, yes. <laughs> Flat out. Yeah, we do still cramp. I'd say it seems like it's gotten less likely with the better nutrition, like we mentioned earlier. Like I think if you stay on top of your, you know, your carb intake and, you know, your hydration, I think cramps like at that point, then they only happen like near the end of races when you're like flat out or, and you've used everything you have. Um, but it does seem like they've kind of gone away a little bit with, with the better nutrition. Um, yeah, I mean, I still, I still cramp like at the end of Leadville, the last, uh, last 20 minutes or so I had like, my legs started to have like, wasn't, they weren't locked up, but they, you know, like the cramp twitches. Mm -hmm. Um, and then same at steamboat, like I had some twitches the last, 
you know, like probably last five miles. And then after the finished sprint, like I fully locked up after I crossed the line, like legs just like locked up, but I couldn't, couldn't move. <laughs> uh, so normally that's when it happens for me is after a sprint. Cause I think you just like, you just dump, you're just dumping glycogen, right? You're just, you're going so hard. And I think, um, yeah. And your muscles just aren't used to after riding tempo at Leadville for six hours and then doing more tempo with like not a whole lot of efforts at steamboat and you go ahead and sprint your body just like, no, what are you, what are you doing? You know? So I think I mean, it does still happen. Uh, yeah. If you just stay on top of your nutrition, um, obviously you can't go harder than you should either. So maybe at Leadville, maybe your nutrition was off or maybe you like went harder than you should have earlier in the race. And that can play a big role in it. Um, so you ride above your level, then you're, you're likely to cramp. Um, yeah. Everyone's so I guess on it, uh, like seven hour pace. When they go up St. Kevin's, right. everyone's seven hour rider, right? Like, oh yeah. I and mean, we're, uh, we're riding it like it's a five hour race, you know? So everyone's yeah. doing it. You just have to like <laughs> yeah. kind of find that balance of, uh, maybe, I, maybe I should back it off just, just a little, you know? So for sure. Yeah. How about you, Mateo? Were you cramping at all in those tour de France, like breakaway days that must've just been brutal? Yeah. At the tour, no. And I never used to cramp as a kid either. Uh, I was never a guy who cramped. I'd always have, you know, it was always more aerobic. Like I'd have like a, I just cap out on breathing or whatever before I, before my muscles went. But in the last few years I have started to cramp actually, uh, weirdly, like when I started doing these longer races and heat and stuff, I have had issues with cramping and it all was just a hydration issue. Uh, I I'm, I have a very particular, like I'm super light skinned and my genetics are super bad in the heat. Basically, uh, I just dump a lot of, uh, I just sweat a ton and, and my sweat is super high concentration in salt. So if I don't control that well and I lose enough salt or water, I'll, I'll cramp pretty badly. But in the tour, I was super, super on it with that stuff. So I never, I never cramped surprisingly, How even though it was the hottest tour of all time, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. How much sodium do you take in an hour? Are you keeping track of that at all when you're on the bike? Definitely. I take 1700 milligrams an hour if I'm riding hard. That's so a I'm a, I'm way above <laughs> the normal ranges. Uh, that's one of the things I learned in Andorra before I went to the tour is it's been a problem for me than I, I mean, my whole life in the heat and I've never performed, I'd never performed well in a hot race, literally my whole life. Um, so in Andorra, I like begged the team if we could, you know, put some money forward and, and do some testing. And we did testing and they were, you know, the science, the scientists came out from university of Bilbao it was like, a whatever master of thermodynamics and all this stuff. And he did it. And he was just like, well, the range is 500 to 1100. And he's like, there's no human that can, that can um, sweat out more than 1100 <laughs> milligrams of salt. And I'm like, okay, well you just wait then. And yeah, we did, we did like four or five days of like independent days of testing uh, in Andorra where I was wearing sweat patches, weighing, controlling everything, controlling urine. And yeah, I was consistently sweating between 1500 milligrams, and 1700 milligrams. If it was over like 85 wow. degrees. Uh, and so it was the, it's the big, it's been the biggest change for me in performance. And I think it's one of the reasons I did well in the tour uh, was that I had that lockdown. So I was actually taking in enough salt to like, absorb the water i was drinking because for years i would i knew i sweat a lot right like you can tell when you when you lose a bunch of water and sweat and you can tell when you sweat and i've always been a heavy sweater but i never knew how much salt i had in it and how much i was losing and so knowing that now and i, I mean now i just take salt pills i like have one of my pockets is just loosely full of salt pills uh in the race mm -hmm. and so i'm just like i take you know depending on what 
drink mixes I'm taking, I, I calculate it all, but I'm taking, you know, three, four salt pills an hour that are 250 milligrams. And it, it's made a crazy difference. You can just see it in, in your heart rate, um, drift in a race, like in those hot days when it was like over a hundred and 110 degrees and in, in the tour and I was in the break, it's like, my heart rate drift would be very, very minimal. Like I would, I would finish the stage doing, you know, very normal heart rate. So it's been a big, big change. So I'll just say hydration. So Mateo, you said 1700, are you trying to replace 1700 or are you just sticking to? I'm trying to replace 1700. Um, per hour. Okay. Yeah. It's hard to control in a race and, and, and it's actually not like it's 1700 milligrams. They tell you this, this number, but like, it all depends on how much water you take in per hour too. Like it's all the concentration. So it's a very difficult thing to actually control perfectly in a, in a bike race because some, some hours you have more water than others or more liquid or whatever. Um, but yeah, I was trying to hit like 1500, uh, I was trying to hit 1500 an hour and, and some hours I was going over some hours under. Yeah, solid. Uh, James says, I just finished my A race. Super frustrated. I could use some help. My A race is a local grand fondo that we all treat more like a race. I've done it for three years now, but never followed a structured plan. I was ready to go after a strong six months of following a trainer road plan with great consistency. My numbers were great coming into the event and judging by the past races, I should have been close to winning, but I ended up tying my previous best with a ninth place finish. <clears throat> Interesting. There's no mention of like time here. You know what I mean? Like from, but more, it's just relative to other people with a finish. I think that's a, a key point to point out here. So instead of winning, ended up ninth. At first, I blamed the training, but looking at the numbers, I didn't even come close to performing like I have been uh, able to in training for months. So I'm left scratching my head and hoping you can help me get to the bottom of what could have happened. I hit my nutrition goal of 90 grams per hour. I felt fresh and ready to go after the taper, and I got great rest for two weeks leading up to the event. Only thing that does stand out to me is the amount of nerves I felt. Having actually trained for this year, I knew I knew I'd be in the hunt to win, so that did make me nervous. But other than that, I'm just not sure why I didn't perform like I know I can. Uh, Keegan, this one, uh, what would you say here? It's like this dissonance between my ability to perform in training and then on race day when it matters a ton, not being able to deliver that sort of performance. Yeah. I mean, it's always a tough one. If he thinks he nailed his taper and his nutrition was on, then I mean, I'd say it's probably all in his head. Uh, it sounds like just has some mental things to work out and hurdles as far as like competitions concerned. Um, and maybe he wasn't racing his race. Maybe he was trying to race too much to other people's race, if that makes sense. So instead of like focusing on what he needed to do to perform best, he was like, maybe just chasing everyone down. And like, he just had all this stress. Um, so yeah, I'd say that's the biggest piece. I mean, I think in order to win a race, you have to be really confident, but you also can't have too much stress. You know, you can't be like always riding at the front and, you know, always chasing down these moves and whatnot. So I don't know exactly how this race what the course, how it plays out, but I mean, that can play a huge part in it. And, uh, yeah, I think sometimes if you're the favorite for a race, obviously there's a lot of pressure and I think you have to find a way to, to manage that, whether he, the pressure was on himself or from other people, it's really irrelevant. You just have to find a way to manage it. Um, yeah, I mean, that's, I think, uh, I mean, it seems like there's a lot of guys who kind of have that same issue. It seems like there's some riders who can really perform on, you know, training days or group rides, but then they get in a race and, there's just too many nerves and they can't seem to find the engine that they have in training. And, um, yeah, I don't really know how to, 
how they, the best way to crack that nut other than just race more and try and figure it out, you know? Mm. I mean, that's a simple answer, but I think it's actually really, uh, productive, like racing more, getting used to that and and getting used to the environment certainly. And maybe that's the best, best way to do it, you know, or maybe you need to race without your power meter or your, any data, maybe you're too data driven. You're focusing too much on it. Maybe you just need to throw that thing away and just race your bike. I, I don't know. There's not really a perfect answer. You know, it could be, there's so many things that it could be. So it's, you know, it's hard to say exactly one thing. Yeah, for sure. Mateo, uh, what would you say to this? I'm sure you have being surrounded by so many people that raced so much, like you mentioned all the folks in Europe <laughs> racing when they're 14 years old, racing all those days. Um, but what would you say to an athlete that has a struggle executing to their abilities on race day? Yeah, I think that is a very, I mean, like you can said, it's a really complex puzzle. Like your body is not a exact, it's not a machine, you know, it's like you can't, some days you're, you just can't execute what you can do in training or in another race or what you think your abilities are. Um, but yeah, I would say, yeah, that's a hard thing with having one race. That's your, that's your objective. And if you don't race a lot, it's, you can't have those nerves. And a lot of times that can, that can be unproductive to have so many nerves and it all based on one day, if you don't race a lot. So, yeah, I think, uh, uh, you know, a big help would be racing more to get used to that stress and and what it's like to perform in a race scenario. And then, um, yeah, it could be like, like you were saying that he needs to either, you know, throw away his numbers and not look at a power meter in a race, or maybe he was, you know, trying to go too hard in the beginning of a race and, 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 um, went a little too, too deep. And then, right. Maybe he needs to look at it more. Yeah, definitely. Maybe he don't needs know. to look at it <laughs> yeah. more and, and make sure he's not, you know, going over his limits when, because in the beginning of a race, when you have adrenaline and when you have, you know, usually well fueled because the night before you ate a ton and you're nervous and, and, just being nervous for a race that, you know, is your goal, it makes you perform better. And so in the first hour, if you go super deep and, you know, it's very, 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 very easy to do and you don't even realize it, but if you do that, you know, in the last hour you'll pay and you won't even remember that you went so deep in the first hour. So I think that could be, maybe he just needs to look back at his file and and see if in that first hour he did a little too much. Yeah. I I see a lot of athletes when they've trained and they're, they have like all time fitness, right. And they're really doing well. It's easy to race. Like you said, pretty aggressively, right. Keegan, like, cause you get to the front and it doesn't hurt as much and you're excited because, and you want to make things happen in the race. Um, it just feels but, effortless. You know, it's like, even yeah. for me, when I did like the white room FKT, I went out and like, maybe I can do like 350 Watts today for six hours. Like, yeah, no problem. <laughs> I got this. And you're like, no, I can't do that. We're going to stick to the plan and we're going to ride 300. Like, so you have to be like, when you have adrenaline and you're just stoked, you can go so much harder than you can mm-hmm. without it. You get in that race environment and you can just push yourself so much deeper. So yeah, maybe I think Mateo might have a good, good point there too. It's just, you know, go back and look at the file and be like, Oh, I went, I did, you know, 30 minutes of threshold the first bit of the race. And like, no wonder I blew up at the end. So I think it could go either way, you know? Yeah. Even if it's accelerations, it's like, it might not even have been a, been a long effort you know like i i find a lot of times that i get super fatigued with just doing little sprints that accumulate through a race like i can look back and be like i was way too concerned about positioning for some sector in the first whatever Mm. however race and and it's like you know those things all add up and even if in the file you you don't see like that you're doing some huge effort where you went to the well it's like you should look at on training peaks, there's a cool function where you can look at the amount of time you spend in each zone and 
a lot of times I'll look at a race and I'll be like, like, even if you look at a file and it doesn't look crazy, you can look at a, you can look at that. You can look at this thing and how much time you spent, you know, above zone five. And it's like, if I spend, you know, 20 minutes above 600 Watts, I'm going to be paying for that a lot. Um, so I think that's, that's another important thing. You might've just been falling moves like crazy in the beginning. Yeah. That's that a really good it, point. That's a we pretty, built out that those, those feature. Take it out of you. <laughs> yeah. We built out that feature in trainer road uh, for that same reason. And you can like custom set whatever that zone needs to be. Cause sometimes you'll find like a problem zone where like with your current fitness, you're just not good at a certain thing and you want to isolate and see where you're at, you know, like, uh, and, and make sure that you're not spending too much time in those spots. Uh, easy to underestimate how much time we spend there yeah you know? that was or totally overestimate especially i mean sure you found that at cape epic you know like some days i was like man why am i so shelled i didn't i never there was no sustained efforts and i go and look at that like how much time i spent in zone six and we spent like 40 minutes in zone six and i'm like oh no yes. wonder i'm shelled like that's like you know 40 minutes over like 450 watts or whatever so i think first first hour know, of every day that yeah you're I just flat out like, so i think that, that yeah makes. you gotta look at that and figure out where where you're going so deep yeah yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Keegan, one last thing before we end here, how, what you mentioned that unbound was 600 TSS, how many, how much I, TSS? Will, let me, let me go look actually. So I'm not tell you how much wrong. TSS was 24 hours in the old Pueblo. I think that That's one was insane. like eight, eight something. Uh, <laughs> let me find it for you guys. That's <laughs> yeah, insane. So, um, unbound. We've been It'd trying to actually Everesting what that was. That yeah. Oh yeah. Old. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good one. Cause that was pretty, I mean, relatively short for everything compared to most folks, obviously if it was the record, but that was, you were carrying high power, uh, for the duration yeah. of that. Mateo, are you interested in everything or any of that stuff? No, no. <laughs> <laughs> I was telling Keegan the other day, he, he, needs get, he, need, yeah, he needs to get, he needs to get his brain checked out for that. I don't know. Oh, that's he's, it. he's broken. He accepts to me, that. that. He's sounds, broken. To me, that sounds like the absolute most unpleasant thing I could possibly do in cycling. But, uh, yeah. no, no, I'm not interested at all. What about big gravel races? Are there any in the U S that like you, you would like to do? You know, I did unbound last world? year. Uh, Oh really? They had Canyon. Yeah. Kind of forced me to do unbound after the Giro. It was only one week after the Giro. So I was pretty shelled. And really... so, so you're already like, like record shelled going into the Giro. Yeah. You do the Giro and then you do it was unbound. five days. I was a Saturday after finishing oh my Sunday. It was, it was terrible. Oh. I mean, I had a really bad experience also with just like, yeah, those races have, they're, they're highly based on your, on, I guess your luck. And I just had a bunch of flats and maybe my tires weren't good or whatever. I didn't have, everything perfect but it was just like it just felt so like like the the guys that it felt like the guys that won were just the guys you know just like or guys that didn't crash or whatever and it was just like oh i, I never want to do this again but maybe i'll reconsider yeah. it uh, in the future it just felt like it took away a lot of like the yeah a lot of like the the competitive nature of, of racing because it was just like more survival than anything yeah, yeah. for sure so right, unbound was 610 Whew. And 24 hours of the old Pueblo was 827. <laughs> and it was, uh, what do we do? That's oh, like almost 17,000 KJs. Thousand? Oh, <laughs> yeah, it was like, yeah, high 16s. Yeah, well, yeah, it's so, pretty gnarly. Yeah, and those efforts, you... that one, that one took a lot out of me. It took me like about, I don't know, I probably could have recovered faster had I like just, taking some more time off because I was like, I thought I was ready and then I wasn't. And I felt like I 
barely got recovered in time for Cape Epic. So yeah, it was, yeah, it was big. It's my 827 TSS in a few, over a few days. Doesn't, isn't that big, but I guess when you do it all at once, it, it leaves a pretty big hole. Yeah. I would say it's pretty big no matter what. Yeah. <laughs> 800 TSS yeah. in a week is like decent. Yeah, exactly. It's a pretty good week, you know? Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. Huge really week. good week. Uh, all right. Well, uh, Mateo, what's next for you? I go to Tour Britain on Wednesday. And then Sweet. I finished the Ursa Italian Classics. Sweet. Uh, well, everyone on the podcast here will be cheering for you. Go follow Mateo Thank on you. Instagram. Mateo Jorgensen, I think, is yes. your name on there. Exactly, yeah. yep. Just as simple as his name. So go follow him on there. Go follow Keegan. Uh, Keegan, you have Schwam again? Is that Yeah, we got race? Park City Point to Point this coming weekend. Uh, Should nice. be a, just kind of a fun hometown race. Uh, and then, yeah, Schwam again's up next. 75 so. miles and like almost 13,000 feet of climbing fun. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. it's all trail, you know, <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> just ripping. Yeah. Like Mateo said, we have all the good. So you just ride trail all day. It's, it's kind of sick. <laughs> yeah. For yeah. Keegan. Yeah. Um, yeah. awesome. Well, good luck to everybody doing park city point to point Mateo. Thanks a bunch for joining us, man. I'm stoked to support you and cheer for you throughout the rest of the year. And Thank we'll talk guys. to you all next fun. time. Yeah. That's thanks awesome. both of you guys. Yeah, Big thanks, admirer. Guys. So thanks for taking the time with both of you. Thank you.